0: Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie talks with Ben Schott about the importance of failing early in one's career, about how to take a politician's picture, and about writing and designing his own books. I think that's what differentiates me. I'm not really a writer and I'm not really a designer. I'm a writer who uses design and a designer who uses words. Here's Debbie
0: Milman. Here are a couple of things we learned from Ben Schott's original miscellany. In 19th century English public schools... An undersized boy was called a nester. And if a boy was surprised by something, he might say beards. On the next page, you'll learn more than you ever thought possible about glove sizes, both English and continental. Ben Schott's career has been almost as varied as the topics that fill his books. He spent the first part of his professional life working for an ad agency before heading off to become a freelance portrait photographer. Then he wrote, designed, and typeset his first book of miscellany, which became a bestseller. More miscellanies and almanacs followed. His latest book is a difficult word to pronounce. You want to think I'm saying schadenfreude, but I'm actually not. The book's title is Schadenfreude, German Words for the Human Condition. He joins me today to talk about his books and whatever other miscellaneous topics that present themselves. Ben, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you very much. So in addition to all the vocations that I just shared with our listeners, is it true that you also play drums in a funk band? Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it seems incredibly unlikely. Even I think it's quite unlikely. How did have, that
0: happen and what, what do you
1: play? Like, what do you do with this funk band? I haven't played for years, although I was recently at an event and there were some musicians on a stage and they were playing and after about half an hour, someone, one of them, leant into the mic and said does anyone here play the drums? Now, if it's any drum is listening, you have dreams about this happening. So I kind of, <laughs> I looked around and I was like, I speak a little jive. So I got up and I played the drums and a lot of my friends who were there had no idea I played. I think I was wearing a tweed suit and it was just who is the crazy limey on the drums
0: and was it respectable
1: it was average white drumming from an average white drummer
0: from an average white limey drummer
1: yeah not quite good enough for the average white band but you know (laughs) it was it was it was it was up there as perfectly mediocre
0: didn't they just get nominated for the rock and roll hall of fame
1: they're still alive yes they are well both of those things surprised me
0: in addition to all of these different vocations, I came across a number of different descriptions of you and all the research that I did in preparation for today's oh, show. Yeah. And so the Daily Telegraph was asking their audience, I guess, who is this Ben Shot? And apparently they described you possibly being an elderly librarian with half-moon spectacles and cobwebs in his hair, which I thought was kind of like describing Harry Potter.
1: <laughs> well, this came about because the first book I did, the original Miscellany, I was advised by a friend not to put anything about me on, on the flap, the flap copy, as Edward Gori calls it, nothing about this. So kind so- of like Banksy. Sort of a little less exciting than Bansky, but the idea that was that nobody really wanted it to be the work of a twenty-something-year-old public school boy who just dropped out of advertising. So I just made it this sort of found object, almost like a book. And the design and the typography was meant to make it look like a book that you'd think I've seen this before. This rings a bell. Did my fun. Eighteenth century. Exactly. <laughs> and I thought so. I put nothing about me, and that meant that when people bought it, there was a sense of what is this book? Who is it by? Who is Ben Shott? And that was fine by me. I had no desire to be known or famous. So I didn't think I put anything about myself on the first three or four books, just because I liked the idea that it didn't really matter who wrote them. It was the writing and the design that mattered.
0: Well, we'll get to both of those elements shortly. Um, in the meantime, you were born in North London, England, the son of a neurologist and a nurse why didn't you go into the medical field?
1: Well, my brother did, and there was only money for... No. Um, <laughs> so my parents met at Guy's Hospital. My father was a junior doctor and my mother was a nurse. And this was on the days that the nurses would make breakfast for the doctors on night duty in the morning. They can, still don't? Can you imagine? <laughs> and actually, my mother said that if she got on a bus in the nurse's uniform, they wouldn't let her pay because you're an angel, darling. No, no, no. You know, um, your, your money's no good.
0: Holding scrambled eggs. Exactly,
1: for the doctor. So they met, and it's a very medical family. And my brother is a neurologist and he's married a neurologist. They're all neurologists. And it was good for me that I wasn't. I didn't have the Latin. I couldn't. It became clear that I was doing anything that was going to be arts rather than sciences. But your
0: work is very heavy. Very heavy.
1: Well, that's Kind. I mean, if anything, this follows from my father, who is a he's an academic neurologist, but also he writes a lot of curious scientific papers. So he's written scientific papers, say, on Leonardo's handwriting, on the history of the scientific footnote. I mean, he has the same kind of miscellaneous mind, which I think I probably inherited.
0: So you went to college in Cambridge, where you were a photographer for the university student newspaper and played on the hockey, cricket and croquet college teams. You were also a member of a number of dining societies and the secretary of the Shakespeare Society. Have you always been a multitasker?
1: No, I didn't really do any work. That was the that was the <laughs> trick. And that makes me sound like I'm a significantly more sporting and popular person than I actually am. The croquet was about the limit of my I'm actually my name is engraved on a cup. Really? For croquet. Only because my partner in crime, my you know my other guy, he was secretary of his local club. I didn't I just sat and drank pims in the sunshine <laughs> and he just went around with his little, you know, mallet and one. I didn't really touch the ball very often. Did you often. have
0: interesting costumes, uniforms?
1: Stripe blazers, sure. Why not? Boaters, yeah. Absolutely. Cravats. Yeah, <laughs> and you absolutely. weren't riding
0: around in any brooms. No, yeah, absolutely. It wasn't <laughs> quite as Harry Potter.
1: That was pre-Harry Potter.
0: Oh yes. So um, significantly, yeah. not that I, I want to give away your age. So, what did you major in when you were in school?
1: I read politics, social and political sciences. So it was a smorgasbord of politics, sociology, criminology, psychology, all theologies, and it was fun. And I was basically sort of left alone, and it was a sort of self-taught degree.
0: So what made you decide to go into advertising after you graduated? It seems an unlikely career path for somebody with those majors.
1: Well, yeah, although there's no real career path for advertising, career is more of a, you know, a verb as you career downhill. I mean, it's <laughs> That's career. <laughs> you can career, I think. I certainly did. So I thought I'd better get a job. I always wanted to be a photographer. And when I was at school, I used to work in the dark rooms of, say, the independent newspaper, the Times. That was kind of where my love was. But I just, I think I was just scared. I thought before finals, I should get a job. I should earn some money. I should have a career. So I did. I got this incredible job at J. Walter Thompson, you know, 3,000 applicants for six places.
0: How did you get the job? What made you the chosen applicant?
1: I clearly bluffed very well because within a week of the job starting, I thought I have to quit. And within about two months, I had. Um, I thought it
0: was four, actually. <laughs> Not that I want to be a stickler for I accuracy. I actually can't remember,
1: but it was, so, it was certainly under six. And everyone said, my God, you've got to stay a year, think of your CV. You know, if you don't stay a year, people will. Since then, no one has ever asked for my CV.
0: Well, it's interesting. I think that there's been a big shift in the expectation of longevity in any place of employment where... When I graduated, the same thing. You have to stay for a year. You have to stick it out. And now it's like, Oh, I was there four months. I was there seven months. I was there eight months. I've been at my day job for 20 years, which is, you know, makes me prehistoric.
1: I completely agree. I think your first job out of university, given that it was such a big deal to get this job, I mean, it was crazy. You know, three interview processes, a three-day testing in a hotel. I mean, the whole thing was crazy. And it was so obvious that the job and me were not going to get on. Although I'm still very, very friendly with the guy who first hired me 20 years ago. We have lunch, you know, three or four times a year. So it was a good step because it meant that I could fail fast and early when I was paying paid so little, it didn't really matter what I did next.
0: So you were working on a lot of candy accounts, KitKats, Kats, Smarties, Polo, Rolo, Polo.
1: After Eights, which all I meant was I had a big cupboard and every week someone would deliver, it's like a little sweet shop, and deliver more big boxes. <laughs> so I just used to eat a lot of Kit Kats and I would get big like padded envelopes and just fill them full of sweets and send them to my friends randomly.
0: So you resigned. I resigned did. in air quotes. <laughs> after well, no, all I that do. candy went missing. No, I'm teasing. What made you decide that it wasn't for you? Like what gave you the sense that this is not a good fit?
1: I think anyone who's quit a job like this knows it's like combing your hair the wrong way. It's just so instinctive. And I've tried very much from then to do things that, you know, feel instinctively right. And, you know, if you look up and you don't want to get at to the top of the ladder you're climbing, then why are you climbing the ladder? And there was nobody whose job I wanted at the top of this. And there was one man, Harry McCausland, who was one of the people who interviewed me. And I wanted to be him. But it's a bit like what Stephen Fry said about being Princess Margaret's assistant. You're never going to become Princess Margaret. You know, I was never going to become Harry McCausland.
0: So did you have a sense at that point of real disappointment that this wasn't working for you? Did you have a sense that what else could you do? What else would you do?
1: No, I mean, I quit knowing what I wanted to do. I didn't just quit into a void. I quit and I said, I want to be a photographer. This is what I've always wanted to be. The day after I quit, I went and bought a Mamiya RZ kit with the money that I didn't have. And I bought some lights and I bought a big tripod. And it was like, right, now I'm a photographer.
0: Now, from what I understand, you were primarily self-taught while you were working in the dark rooms of The Independent during school holidays. So what gave you the sense that now I can be a photographer?
1: I mean, I was self-taught to the extent that that's how I learn best. So The Independent had at the time, I mean, it's. I think it's a absurd newspaper now but at the time it was unbelievable it's difficult to describe as a photographer what that paper was big broadsheet and for some bizarre reason it had a different way of scanning or a different way of printing a different screen system the inks were much blacker the tonal range was perfect it was unbelievable and they would literally hold the front page for a good photograph not for me, but I was working in the dark rooms, developing films for people like, you know, Brian Harris and David Ashdown and names that will mean nothing. But these were unbelievable news photographers. And all I wanted to do was be as good as them. And that's how I learned. You find a standard that you think this guy is really good or this girl is really good. And if I can be that good,
0: I'm getting there. So you ended up having a photograph, I believe, on that front page or page two of... Was it Tony Blair or Stephen Hawking's or John Prescott?
1: Actually, it was um, some dogs.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, was, then.
1: <laughs> I did photograph all these people later on, but this one was of these big, beautiful papier-mâché dogs that an artist friend of mine had made and we took them around London and installed them. There's a fantastic setup where we put them along the bank opposite the Houses of Parliament and this wonderful sort of scene of these horrible dogs with these big sharp ceramic teeth and in the background you know the Palace of Westminster with the iconic towers and it was just a nice shot and it was that's the time I took it up I said what do you think and they said that's lovely page two.
0: So tell us about photographing Tony Blair, Stephen Hawking and John Prescott, who I read was rude to you.
1: Yeah, there was some issues with John Prescott. Tony Blair was awkward because Sherry Blair wasn't particularly nice. So the portrait photography I did, if I had a reputation, it was I was a good guy to photograph obnoxious people. Because Why is that? Partly because I studied politics. And so I knew and I would read up on people and I could go in. And if you've got five minutes with someone. If you can talk, you get that to 10 minutes. That's unbelievable. That's the difference between getting, you know, 20 frames and 40 frames. And that's a huge choice for a picture editor. So I was good at handling difficult men, politicians, businessmen, the people who didn't want to be photographed and resented the whole process.
0: How did you disarm them? How did you get them to relax?
1: It's odd. Certainly in Britain, I don't know if it's the case over here, photographers are sort of They're almost like servants. They don't hear, they don't speak, you know, you don't talk to them. They're just sort of, you know, monkeys with cameras. And if you instantly talk to them about something that's going on or they know about that, it proves you've done some research. They're so disarmed. They're like, wow, that's what I found. So Tony Blair was charming. Cherie Blair, this was at Chequers, which is the sort of Camp David of British politics, his weekend retreat. And I was there setting up lights, cameras, and she stormed in and goes, what are you doing in here? So I said, well, (laughs) look around photographing (laughs) guess I mean what's the thing and then she said "Uh, you know I hope you're not going to be long we're having supper soon so I said oh what's for supper and then she just stormed out so that wasn't much of a rapport there but on the whole people weren't all horrible
0: Let's talk about your first book, Original Miscellany. Now, you said it differently than I did.
1: I say miscellany.
0: um, Miscellany. And you also say papier-mâché. I say paper mache Yes. You say it much more elegantly. Let's call the whole thing off.
1: Um, (laughs) (laughs) What's odd is I actually have a stutter. I have a speech impediment. And there are certain words I can't say under pressure. And one of them is miscellany. For some reason, today I can say it. Often I can't. And I was on the Today Show in 2000, whatever it was, three, you know, with... um,
0: one of those big-time journalists. Yeah, I think um, Matt Lauer. Sorry. Oh, Matt. Matt. Lauer. Sorry.
1: It's very sweet. And live, he said, so we say miscellany. How do you say it? And I, my stutter came in, and I froze. I mean, I froze. And in that moment, I said, never write a book, the title of which you can't pronounce. It's just absurd. So I managed to say I stressed the second syllable, which is a tongue twister for anybody else. But I was, I mean, panic overtook me. Anyway, a long way of saying, yes, I say miscellany.
0: <laughs> How did the idea first come about?
1: It was a Christmas card. As a photographer, as a lowly, humble freelance photographer, I would send a little card out every year to remind people that I was alive. Because as freelancers know, you get the job if you're standing in front of them at the time they're giving the job away. It's very, very hard.
0: So was this a card that was promoting your photographic skills?
1: Well, weirdly not. I did a series of cards that were all graphic jokes, because I'm essentially a frustrated graphic designer. So the first one, my name is Shot, so S-C-H-O-T-T, and the first card had Shot three times shot, shot, shot in black, but with the ho, ho, ho in red, which was very fun for me and entirely unhelpful in my career in photography. And one year I thought I would do a little booklet of information for picture editors, photographers, so with things like lighting temperatures, chemical stocks, stuff that is of now no use to anybody. And it was kind of dull, so to leaven it, I added wine bottle sizes, cloud types, phobias, this kind of thing. The little booklet became sort of 16 pages. And rather than send it, a friend of mine persuaded to do something with it. I turned it into a little book, which I designed, typeset. I had 50 copies printed at a little press outside London, purely for fun. And just you to...
0: self-funded that?
1: Yeah. I think it, it cost quite a lot of money at the time. I just did it just to amuse myself. I had a marker ribbon. It was beautiful. They did a fantastic job. So I had 50 copies to give to my friends. I didn't have many friends, so I had 48 copies left. I sent one to the head of Bloomsbury, just with a note saying, I thought you might find this fun.
0: Bloomsbury, the publisher of the Harry Potter books.
1: Back to Harry Potter. And six months later, it was on the shelves. It was the strangest process. It was just, it shouldn't happen. It was incredibly easy, straightforward, and just there it was.
0: So you send 50 copies out, or thereabouts, 48, 50, mm-hmm. and you get a response from... No, no, no. I
1: just sent one to Bloomsbury. That was it.
0: Oh, wait a second. So the other 49, you really weren't joking? You, you no, really I didn't gave it to send... my friends.
1: No, I, my friends have them. I've got about three left. I only sent one copy to the head of Bloomsbury, Nigel Newton,
0: and that was it. And so then you get a call one day or an I get email. a call.
1: And then they said, like, this hey, is great.
0: Ben, it's Nigel. Yeah. Want to meet for a spot of tea?
1: Actually, he, he has a very sort of curious Middle Atlantic accent, Ben is Nigel. And yeah, I stumbled into it.
0: And so you had a book contract?
1: I had a book contract. And then everything kind of went crazy.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about what happened and also the book itself. It's quite remarkable. It's a really unusual book. It looks a little bit like an old-fashioned almanac. It's chock full of the most beautiful typography. It is quite remarkable that somebody that doesn't have a background in graphic design was able to do that type of typography. But you open the book with a quote from Virginia Woolf, and this is the quote, Let us not take it for granted that life exists more fully in what is commonly thought big than what is commonly thought small. That is from her book, The Reading of Silence, in the chapter, The Narration of Interiority. I can't help but think that you spent a lot of time thinking about that quote and its relation to what is in the book. Tell me I'm wrong.
1: No, you're not. I'm a fan of Virginia Woolf. I'm a real fan of Mrs. Dalloway, more than anything else she's written. But what I think subuses her work is that sense that small things are significant. There's another great quote which sums up one of my theories of design to the extent that I'm entitled to have any theories, which is, light and evanescent, it must be on the surface like a butterfly's wing, but underneath it must be clamped together with bolts of iron. Gorgeous. Uh, I think I slightly got that wrong. I paraphrased her. Sorry, Virginia. But this is what I think is the secret of, you know, so much craft – is to make it look effortless and evanescent like a butterfly's wing, but it needs to have structure, rigidity, purpose. So the book is the golden ratio. It's 1 to 1.618. If you're designing a book, why not? The type is 8.5 point and the baseline grid is 9.51 points, so it absolutely hits the bottom line perfectly. So these are the tiny little details that I put into the book because underneath it must be clamped together with bolts of iron, even though, I hope, you look at it and you just go, oh, what a quirky little book.
0: So the typography is really, really sophisticated for anybody that hasn't seen the book. It's incredibly well done. It's really tight. And for somebody that has not spent a lifetime in typography, it seems almost impossible that somebody could come out of the gate and their typography being that smooth, that good. Well, that's
1: incredibly sweet. I mean, I'm a designer to the extent that I design my work in the sense that I'm a salesman in that I can sell my work. But the real salesman can sell anything and a great designer can design anything. And I think that's what differentiates me. I'm not really a writer and I'm not really a designer. I'm a writer who uses design and a designer who uses words. But I'm not really qualified in either of those. So I think the difference between me and a proper designer is that they could be designing a fridge one day and a book and an album cover the next. And I design what's in my brain. So it's a slightly different way of thinking. So you're an artist. I'm also not an artist. (laughs) No, I mean, the difference between art and design, I think, is actually central to this. I read a quote somewhere, I have no idea, it may be famous, that says the difference between art and design is, in design, there's a problem and you have to solve it, which is what I do. With art, you have to create the problem first. And that's, I think, a big difference. I don't create the problems.
0: Originally, the book came out with very little fanfare, despite the wonderful path to publication. It came out with very little fanfare. But an article by Stuart Jeffries on the front page of The Guardian's G2 section in 2002 changed everything. What happened?
1: (laughs) It's actually one of the strangest stories. I got a phone call from my publishers saying, oh, The Guardian's running a piece on the cover of G2 tomorrow. And I said, well, that can't be true because they haven't spoken to me. I mean, how can they write an article about a book when they haven't spoken to the author? That's insane. So they said, oh, no, no, they have. So I was terrified. I thought they're going to destroy this book. I don't know what they're going to do. They're going to fact check it. I mean, I think it's right. But my God, I, I was genuinely terrified. So about 11.45 at night, I drive down to King's Cross, which is the area in London, big train station, and there is a news agency that's open 24 hours. And I happen to know from my days as a newspaper photographer, that that's where the first editions get dumped. So I sat there, and I waited until about quarter past 12 or whatever. Someone comes out of the van, throws the you know Guardian, guy takes a knife, cuts it open. I buy them almost warm from the presses. And I'm genuinely shaking because I'm thinking, this, this person's going to destroy me. And it's a front cover picture of my book, taking the, you know, the whole page. And it says, you know, this book tells you blah, 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 blah. Why is this book the publishing sensation of the year? Which until that point, it wasn't. Now, what I didn't know, which I only discovered many years later, is they actually didn't do this to promote my book. They did this to piss off the Telegraph, who had bought cereal. So it was actually a spoiler designed to knock a rival who I just signed up to do a column because they wanted me to carry on doing this thing. I had no idea at the time. So what was bizarre was what was done as a slightly, I think, negative tactic actually was superb. And the book just kind of took off.
0: Well, let me read one of the lines from the review. Robert McCrum wrote this in The Observer. Schott's original miscellany is without doubt the oddest and possibly merriest title you will come across in a long day's march through the shimmering desert of contemporary publishing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, he really is a lovely man, isn't he?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so your life was changed overnight, I assume.
1: Yeah, it was, very, it was very strange. What was odd was that Bloomsbury consistently didn't print enough copies. And that's not negative. I was amazed they printed any copies. And they, sort of, they kept on printing 10,000 more and 15,000 more. And what it meant was there was a dearth in the bookshops. You couldn't buy this book. And so there was this weird moment where people went in and said, I want to buy that book. And they knew exactly what it was. And they said, well, we've run out. You know, we haven't got any. We're going to get some more in tomorrow. And people just said that book. It was very, very strange. I have to say I was slightly unnerved because it was just a book of curious things.
0: So if people ask you, Ben, what is this book about? What do you say?
1: I say it's about everything on the back of your mind and the tip of your tongue. It's all the things that you think you know or would like to know, but you don't really know. And actually, there's, there's, one, there's one page. It's called A Certain Chinese Encyclopedia. Now, this, I think, sums up the psychology, if there is one of the book. <clears throat> I'll read if I may, although possibly an elaborate literary joke, one of the most curious lists is that quoted and perhaps invented by J. L. Borges. In one of his essays, made famous by Michel Foucault, Borges claims that Dr. Franz Kuhn discovered a certain Chinese encyclopedia entitled Celestial Empire of Benevolent Knowledge, which stated that all animals can be classified thus A. belonging to the emperor, B. embalmed, C. tame. D. Sucking pigs. E. Sirens. F. Fabulous. G. Stray dogs. H. Included in the present classification. I. That shake like a fool. J. Innumerable. K. Drawn with a very fine camel hair brush. L. Etc. M. Having just broken the water pitcher. N. That, if seen from distance, look like flies. (laughs) Now, I remember reading this. And it's quoted in Foucault's The Order of Things. And I laughed out loud because this is just a crazy way of, you know, classifying the world. And when I was writing the book, sitting in the British library, anything that made me laugh out loud went in.
0: Well, there are also some wonderful sort of directions for living that I really enjoyed. Here you describe human nature. Almost every man wastes part of his life attempting to display qualities which he doesn't possess. (laughs) (laughs) And that was Dr. Samuel Johnson, who you only refer to as Dr. Johnson. And then other little quotes here. Dictionaries are like watches. The worst is better than none, and the best cannot be expected to go quite true. Where did you find all this information?
1: You have to remember, this was sort of done pre-Google. Information had totally changed in the last, you know, 15 years since this book came out. And you have to remember what the mindset was then. So a lot of it was spent time in libraries and stumbling across things. People said, oh, have you seen this? It was a wonderful paper chase. And anyone who spent any time in a library knows you follow the footnote. You get taken for a walk. One footnote leads to another footnote leads to another footnote. By the time you know it, you know, you're drowning in paper.
0: Did you have to get a lot of permissions for the
1: books? I don't think I got any permissions on the books. The point was not to get stuff that was out there. It was trying to find things that no one else had talked about, which is increasingly hard by the way as a writer and journalist to find stuff that is ungoogleable, which is what I'm trying to do now. But at the time, there really wasn't Google, and so it was trying to find
0: things that didn't exist. So after the launch of the original Miscellany, you followed it up with three sequels, Shots Food and Drink Miscellany, Shots Sporting, Gaming, and Idling Miscellany, and the 2011 Schatz Quintessential Miscellany. The first two were bestsellers. In fact, you had two books simultaneously in the Sunday Times, Top Ten. And the Miscellany Trilogy has sold well over two million copies and has been translated into dozens of languages. And then in the sincerest form of flattery, there was even a parody version, which I love, Shite's Unoriginal Miscellany, <laughs> written by a parody, which spoofed this series? How did you feel when you were spoofed?
1: The spoof was one thing. There were and are, I cannot tell you how many dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of miscellany type books, even now, even 10 years later. I knew it got totally out of hand when my local NHS hospital, where I live in London, the Whittington Hospital, created a Whittington Hospital miscellany. (laughs) It's like, I'm actually being parodied by, not even parodied, I'm being sort of, you know, followed by a hospital. And then someone told me there was a Greek homosexual miscellany, which, frankly, I
0: really want to see because I don't
1: know how you get 160 pages out of it.
0: So then you did the Almanacs. You followed the miscellanies with Almanacs. And you began publishing Schatz' Almanac, which some have described as a reference book, though I think it's a lot more. First published in 2005, you created annual editions published in England, the US, Germany, until 2010. So, can you describe the almanacs and can you let us know how they're different from the miscellanies?
1: Well, if you imagine in your brain an old-fashioned almanac that has, you know, moon phases and lots of information about kings and queens and the order of precedence, it's not that. So I wanted to create an almanac that you would actually read because normally they're books you put on the shelf and you never consult. I wanted to create something that talked about highbrow, lowbrow. You know, the fact that the way we live, it is about American Idol, but it's also about, you know, the Bilderberg group or, you know, what's going on in the G8. Our lives are a tapestry of information. There's celebrity, there's politics, there's news, there's current affairs, there's science, there's medicine, there's sport. And to create an almanac that brought all this together... It very nearly killed me. I mean, writing three of these a year because I sort of oversaw the German and I wrote the American and the British. And they have to be all different. I mean, they yeah, the content is – There was some overlap, but the American one is very, very different from the British. And it was unbelievable. You had to you know, know everything about the news and you had to be totally on top of it. I'm incredibly proud of them. I suspect they're more bought than read.
0: Why is that? Because they're almanacs. <laughs>
1: What I wanted to do was imagine you're a Martian and you came back and said, okay, you know, 2001, the 9-11 attack, you know, you take the book off the shelf 50 years later. What would you want to know? You'd want to know the events, the context, but also the texture, what people felt, what people were tweeting. You don't just want the headlines. You want something that gives you a sense. Wouldn't it be great to go back to, say, 1848, the year of revolutions in Europe? discover what people were wearing, what the songs most popular were, how much a pint of beer costs. There's no way to get this information because it's so spread out. I wanted to create a little time capsule that in 50, 100 years' time would tell you everything you wanted to know from, you know, who won a certain sporting to the words of the year, the quotes of the year, you know, this kind of thing.
0: Now, you introduced the 2006 Almanac with a quote from Ben Hecht. Trying to determine what is going on in the world by reading newspapers is like trying to tell the time by watching the second hand of a clock. Why that quote? Well,
1: this is going to sound incredibly pompous, but, you know, I am. The idea of the Almanac was to have a position somewhere between immediacy of news and newspapers and the history books. And the Almanac, I could take a bit of time. So say the 7-7 bombs in London. So I could have a couple of months, let the dust settle, literally metaphorically, and just say, okay, well, the events were the events, but what does it feel like? And reading the newspapers is like watching a second hand. It tells you what the second is, but you may not know the hour. And the Almanac, I think, has the power. Maybe less so. Maybe it's such an anachronistic idea that it doesn't have a place in society. But I had an attempt to create again, pompous, a kind of very first early draft of history to say, okay, well, this is how I think the year is played out. These are the themes I think that are interesting.
0: My favourite section of the almanacs is substance of the year. Ah. (laughs) Do you think you can give us some examples? So the substance of the year was ostelamavir
1: phosphate. So this is the 2006. Now, that was basically Tamiflu. You may remember a yes. um, huge stockpile of Tamiflu. So that takes you straight back to the avian flu. We now have Ebola. You know, unbelievable. Then we have polonium-210, which was the – I don't know if you remember. This was the highly radioactive substance that was used to kill Litvinenko, which is basically the way of the Russians saying, yes, we have assassinated a man in central London. Um <laughs> And then in 2008, the substance was honey because this was the time when the decline of the honeybee was so big, and there was hive collapse syndrome or something. And then water in 2009 was a substance because it was the year of floods and the year of droughts, and this real sense that I think we're going to discover more and more that water is absolutely central to global security, if not you know humanity. So yeah, substance of the year, that was fun.
0: In 2008, you were appointed a contributing columnist for the New York Times op-ed page. You talk about, parenthetically, as David Shipley noted when he edited the op-ed page, that the term op-ed is not a contraction of opinion and editorial, but a description of the page's location in the paper, opposite the editorial page. And I learned that from reading your website, so thank you very much. Pleasure. What type of op-eds are your favorite to do? Because you've done quite a number, and they're really, really unusual. Can you describe them for our listeners?
1: Well, I should say that David Shipley, who inform me that. He may be lying. I mean, you know, he's a very, very <laughs> untrustworthy individual. He was the person who called me up out of the blue and asked me to do something for the page. And this was five years after 9-11. And so I, he asked me to do just a piece. And he said, how much space do you need? You know, you can have as much space as you want. Just do something that explains how the world has changed. So I did this big sort of series of graphs and texts and details that had everything from, you know, the number of troops, the number of casualties it had, which films had been made by Woody Allen over the years. It had the number of times the New York Times had used the word irony and ironic because apparently 9-11 was the death of irony, certainly not in terms of New York Times usage. I also put George W. Bush's blood pressure and pulse rate because that's publicly available. And he's the only prime minister, as uh, the only president, I think, whose blood pressure and pulse rate have, have basically improved. He got more and more relaxed as, as time went on, <laughs> which says something. So that was the first one. And um, you do
0: bet what, five, seven a year?
1: I do, Yeah. Depending on, this is a terrible phrase, um, I'm probably going to regret saying this, the IRA used to call it spectaculars, which is if they were going to blow a building up, they'd want to blow up Canary Wharf. I mean, if you're going to do it, make it something really spectacular. So I try and do things that I'm really excited by or really proud of. That's the difference between having like a you know, weekly column or you know, where you have to sort of churn it out. If I do six, ten pieces a year, then I can pick the things that I really think are going to work. If I have a mission statement, it's only do what only you can do. So what is your superpower? It's not really a superpower. It's a sort of small niche. (laughs) Um, It tends to be, I think, private knowledge. It's not to say secret knowledge, but private knowledge. So at the moment, I'm really interested in a series of sort of secret languages. So I've written a piece on the secret language of sommeliers, the secret language of bartenders, uh, the secret language of coffee shops around America. I did a whole piece explaining the language of Fashion Week in New York, which was a whole page, and it was fascinating.
0: Let's talk about Schottenfreude. This is a language that you have constructed on your own. You've completely made this up. First of all, am I pronouncing the name of the book correctly? Well, I pronounce it Schottenfreude. Of course you do.
1: But I've been told I have a terrible German accent, so God knows if I'm right. So Schottenfreude is a pun on my surname Schott and the German word Schadenfreude. Now Schadenfreude is simply pleasure at other people's misfortune. It's not a particularly (laughs) pleasant human emotion, but it's certainly one that I think all of us experience from time to time. What the book is, it's a series of German words for the human condition. So German is a strange language. I think it's the only language where you can create compounds, and they do. So, you know, zeitgeist classic german word zeit and geist zeit time geist spirit spirit of the age that's what it is it's the zeitgeist wunderkind wanderlust these are compound words and it occurred to me that it might be fun to create new german words that didn't exist but yet were real german words because when you make them up they exist
0: Now, I read that you came up with the idea for the book when you were driving back from a journey with your wife and wondered why it always seems to take less time to return than it does to go on the outward journey. Is that
1: true? Well, this is definitely true. So the return journey is always much faster. So I emailed my friend Dr. Oscar Bantlau. Does he really exist? He, I promise you, if you, I actually had a drink with him two nights ago. He's a very, very splendid Bavarian mathematician. I, I hand on heart, he really exists. Okay, you the reason make why I'm up.
0: asking is because this man, Oscar, helped you with this book.
1: Exactly. Now, the strange situation about creating a book of new German words is I don't speak German, <laughs> um, but Oscar does. Oscar is a mathematician specializing in string theory, and he really is remarkable. So I emailed Oscar and I said, is there a German word for the sensation that the journey on the way back is much faster than the journey on the way there? And he says, no. And I said, well, could you create one? And he said, well, sure. So in the back of my mind was, well, this is a fun game. So over a period of about a year or so, I just jotted down lots of situations where I thought we needed a word. For example.
0: For example. That
1: sensation where you're walking upstairs, say, in the dark, and you step down really heavily on a stair that isn't there which is void stepping. (laughs) So we need a word for that, that sensation where you step and you feel feel like an idiot. You really do
0: think we need a word for that. Well, clearly.
1: (laughs) Otherwise, you have to say, well, you know that sensation where you're climbing up the stairs and whatever. So void stepping was born and it just became this fantastic game.
0: Well, some of them I'm really, really planning on using. You have malnaid, which is meal envy, which happens to me all the time. I agonize over what to get. I always need to know what other people are ordering before I order. And then inevitably, somebody's meal looks better than mine. And I have Malned, meal envy, defined as coveting thy neighbor's restaurant order.
1: Yeah, it's essentially, why didn't I get the burger as well?
0: Mm -hmm. And then you have santag slerung, which is defined as Sunday afternoon depression, And in 1919, you noted that Hungarian psychologist Sandor Ferenczi devised a diagnosis for Sunday neuroses.
1: (laughs) This is very true. And it was a very elaborate diagnosis. So I should also say that the book doesn't just have these German words, but it also has elaborate footnotes. Yes, And it was the footnotes that really actually were where my sort of heart lies, because I love a footnote. And so what I try to do is to explore how these sensations were not original, in the sense that, you know, you may feel that you're the only person to really enjoy the coolness of a fresh cool pillow in the middle of the night. Well, you're not alone. There's other people. Proust has described this. Goethe has described this. Emily Holt has described this. The word is kissenkühler labsal, which is pillow chill refreshment. But you will know that you're in good company when you turn over the pillow and it's a lovely cool side and you feel wonderful in a hot, hot bedroom. You can quote Proust who said, I laid my cheek against the pillow's blooming cheeks, which forever plump and cool are like the cheeks of our childhood against which we press our own.
0: Now, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this correctly, but I want to say it anyway, because it's something that I suffer from. Saukopf sulzen sensucht Okay,
1: that's a really difficult, that's one of the ones I find very difficult to pronounce as well. Um, that is a
0: shameful love of bad
1: food. Saukopf sulzen sensucht So I have to say, the reason why I can pronounce these is, so Oscar read them all out to me, and I put them on my iPhone. Every time I went for a run, I would listen to him. So I now have his voice in my head saying, "Kras Innenaufstattungs, Neugrußgenuss. (laughs) Which, as you will know, means new car smell. Uh,
0: That's right. So I read that great words ended up on the cutting room floor and you look forward to describing, for example, the inability to take foreign currencies seriously. I think all of us. I
1: mean, I certainly look at the dollar and think it's all green. It's absurd. I mean, it looks like a child's currency. It's ugly. And then when you get somewhere really elaborate, where they've got really elaborate kind of color, like euros will seem a bit childish as well. It's only the good British sterling that I trust. But you probably think that looks equally odd. I think we have money xenophobia, all of us.
0: Ben, it is a remarkable book. It's a gem. Are you going to have a sequel?
1: No, I don't think so. I think it's a small idea that now exists. And not everything, I think, needs sequels. Having the guy who's written several sequels to everything he's done, I think sometimes you just have an idea and then you move on.
0: What book are you working on next?
1: I'm actually not. I'm actually doing other things. The books, I think, are sort of going into abeyance a little bit. I'm doing some more design and some more typography and some consultancy and trying to look at how words and graphic design overlap. That's my new plan.
0: My last question. Yes. Big, important question for you. Right. GQ. Oh, yeah. Readers. Voted you as one of the men of the year yeah, several awkward. years ago. Yeah. You declined the award. Yeah. Why?
1: Well, so I was—I got a letter out of the blue. I mean, this is hugely embarrassing. And I had no idea. So, I, you know, I'm man of the year, brackets, author. And I said, well, that's very nice. Okay. And they said, there's this big party at the Royal Opera House in London somewhere. You know, you got a table of 10 people and David Beckham's going to be there and Elton John's going to be there. And I'm like, yeah, there's no way on earth I'm going to go to that. So I actually got my first book agent in order to get me out of this. His first job was to make sure this just went away. And so he phoned up and said, hello, da-da-da-da. Ben would, you know, very happy a but doesn't want to go to the party. And they said, well, therefore, we will give the order to someone else.
0: Why didn't you want to go? It's not really my thing. I think there's a German word for that.
1: Yeah, there probably is.
0: <laughs> ben, thank you so much for being on Design Manners. It's a pleasure. You can find out more about Ben Schott on his marvelous website, benschott.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica.